0: welcome to the emancipate your mind podcast i'm your host certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach terry hales I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your Playground. the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. It has been a hot minute and I needed that break so badly. It was so wonderful to actually get to just sit and like soak up the summer sun while i researched because research is fun for me, but also got to go to the pool and like kick off band camp and like driving school with my kids. So it was nice to just be like completely present and And do a little bit of self care, like a little self emotional care. And I feel super rejuvenated. It's allowed me to like restructure my whole entire upcoming year. And I'm thrilled to be back. So let's get down to some brass tacks. For the next few weeks, we are going to be talking about covert narcissism because there are several of you who said, hey, loved what you did, where you talked about overt narcissism, where you talked about narcissistic abuse, but you only covered overt or grandiose narcissism, and that doesn't really fit my experience. I'm pretty sure I'm dealing with somebody who has a lot of narcissistic traits, but They are not overt or grandiose at all. And in fact, I think a lot of people who come from highly religious backgrounds, if we have narcissists in our lives, they're usually not overt or grandiose narcissists. They're usually more covert. So we're going to be getting into the three most common types of covert narcissism that shows up in religion over the next couple of weeks. And then we're going to talk about setting boundaries with a narcissist in particular, because setting boundaries with a narcissist is completely different than setting boundaries with someone who is a little bit more emotionally mature or healthy. Before we begin any of that, though, I asked you all on the Emancipate Yourself Facebook group what you most wanted to hear. And one of you said, I really want to know how I can tell if I'm a narcissist or if I'm not a narcissist. This is something that keeps you up at night. This is something that kept me up at night. This is a question I get asked by my clients all of the time. It's a question I get asked on Instagram all of the time. This is a huge concern for those of us who have come from narcissistic families or who have come from narcissistic spousal relationships. But if we're honest with ourselves, any of us who have come from really high demand religions or cults, we were in sort of a narcissistic system. And because it operates that way, we may recognize some narcissistic traits in ourselves when we're talking about this. We might think to ourselves, oh, that sounds familiar, or I've thought that, or I've felt that. And then we might start wondering, am I a narcissist? So When we talk about clinical narcissism, which is an important discussion when healing from past emotional, psychological, and spiritual trauma, many of us recognize some of the traits we're talking about inside of ourselves, especially these next three episodes. I will tell you all, I have recognized parts of all three of the subsets of narcissism we're going to be talking about for the next three weeks. And There was part of me that's like, oh, I had to revisit this again and be like, am I a narcissist? And yes, I do have narcissistic traits. You have narcissistic traits. All humans have some narcissistic traits. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We're going to talk about that today. But what will happen is sometimes we recognize some of those narcissistic traits and then we get worried that maybe we're pathological narcissists too. And we're worried that we're narcissists for a few reasons. First, we've likely been deeply hurt by narcissistic behavior in our past, and we don't want to hurt others the way we've been hurt. Especially if you've left a high demand religion or cult, the entire system you left operates like being in a relationship with a pathological narcissist. Both Dr. Romani, who's a licensed psychologist who specializes in narcissistic abuse, you can find her. On YouTube. I love her videos. They're so well done. And Steve Hassan, who's one of the leading experts on cults, he's the creator of the bite model, which I've used in past episodes. They have both created extensive content on how narcissistic relationships and cults mirror one another. In fact, Steve Hassan goes so far to say that a narcissistic relationship is just a cult of two. So, If you've been in a high-demand religion, even if you don't have family members you would say have strong narcissistic traits, you may recognize some of the things we talk about for the next three weeks and wonder, am I a narcissist? Because you may have picked up some of those things in the system. You may have picked up some of those patterns and some of those behaviors and some of those beliefs because they were part of the indoctrination process. And you may have exemplified those things because not only were they modeled for you as part of a way to be a good member of the congregation, but they were there for survival as well. Being part of the herd, fitting in, we developed these behaviors as a way to get our needs met emotionally. So if you recognize them, just know it makes sense. You're not a bad person. We're going to talk about this. We're going to bring you a level of comfort and the ability to open up to healing these pieces inside of ourselves. Second, we may worry that we're narcissists because there has been a movement, particularly in the last 10 years, there has been a movement to shame and dehumanize clinical narcissists and we don't want to be a part of that group. So as I've been researching this topic for the past year, I've noticed dehumanizing language pop up frequently in reference to people with narcissistic personality disorder. If you type in narcissists are in the Google search bar, watch what comes up as the top suggestions for searches. Some of the top suggestions when I searched were narcissists are evil, monsters, bullies, cruel. The top search when I typed in "narcissists deserve, because I just wanted to see what came up, the very first entry was "narcissists deserve to die. Dehumanization is all about creating this sense that whoever it is we're dehumanizing doesn't deserve the same kindness, consideration, and empathy that a human would, that they are something other than human. They're a monster. They're evil. They are satanic. And we do that so that we can feel better about harming them or in this case, killing them. So the very first entry was narcissists deserve to die. So this is now a life or death thing if you're a narcissist. If you have people believing that narcissists deserve to die then if you recognize narcissistic traits inside of you, it feels like life or death. And when it feels like life or death, we do whatever we can to protect ourselves and to keep ourselves alive. We don't want to be a part of a group that has been labeled monstrous or evil. We definitely don't want others to believe that we deserve to die. Or the next entry that came in was narcissists deserve to be abandoned abandonment is also life or death. That is hardwired into our genetics. If we were left out of the group back in our nomadic days as humans, if we were left out of the group, we were picked off by predators. And so being abandoned meant death. That's why abandonment is such a big issue for so many of us. So It makes sense that we don't want to be a narcissist, that that would be a huge fear for us because A, we don't want to hurt people. We don't want to hurt others the way we've been hurt. And B, we don't want to die. We don't want to be seen as something less than human that's worthy of abandonment or death. The third reason we may be worried that we're narcissists is narcissism has been thrown around as a term that we use anytime someone is thoughtless, self-absorbed, or lacks empathy in the moment. The term is used so much, we might not even really know what pathological narcissism even is. And I'm going to be the first right here to admit that I am guilty of this. My previous episodes, I threw around the term narcissism and probably used it too lightly. I didn't understand at the time when I made those episodes I didn't fully understand that narcissism is on a spectrum. I had never heard the term healthy narcissism, which is something we're going to be talking about today. What I had only learned about was about clinical narcissism, and I really hadn't fully understood the nuance of that. So I'm going to be fully accountable to you that throughout this podcast, I'm going to be learning and growing. What you're getting right now is my latest understanding of the topic But that could change in the next six months. It could change in the next year because I'm learning and growing just like you. So I've used the term narcissism the way a lot of society has been using the term. I've been throwing it around to talk about anyone who is thoughtless or self-absorbed or maybe lacks empathy sometimes because all of us lack empathy sometimes. Sometimes we're just overwhelmed. I know a lot of us coming out of the pandemic right now, we are still working through the shutdown of our nervous system after being hit with calamity after calamity and isolation for the last two and a half years. It makes sense when we're in survival, we don't have access to our mammalian brain, which is the place where we create connections and where we have the ability to empathize. That all comes from our mammalian brain that's built on top of our survival brain. When we don't have as much access to that, we don't have as much empathy So it makes so much sense that some of us right now are really having a hard time empathizing because we're in emotional overwhelm. It doesn't mean that we're clinical narcissists. It means that we're still in survival mode. We're still working through the trauma of the past couple of years. Is it something to get curious about? Is it something to work with? Absolutely. We don't want to stay in a place of non-empathy, but it doesn't automatically mean that we're narcissists. So if you've been using it really lightly, if you've been throwing it around, if you, like me, feel like you look around sometimes and you're like, everyone I see is a narcissist, including myself, you're not alone. But something I've realized is there is a very big difference between exhibiting strong narcissistic traits and having a personality disorder. I want us to remember, and I am talking to myself here, we cannot diagnose someone no matter how much we would like to. Believe me, I have family members I would love to diagnose. I think it would help me feel a little bit of peace and calm, but I can't diagnose them. I'm not qualified to do that. And chances are, if you're listening to this, you're not qualified to do that either. So the information in this series about narcissism is not meant to diagnose our family members, our spouses, our children, What it is meant to do is it's there to help us understand our own trauma. It's there to help us feel less crazy or ridiculous for the feelings we have about our experience and to give ourselves permission to heal. Many of us felt like we were crazy. A lot of the people who had strong narcissistic traits also had lots of great qualities. We may have had lots of good memories with them as well. So... What we're trying to do here is feel less crazy, validate our feelings, work through our wounds, give ourselves permission to do that. And this is just giving us context so we can make sense of it all. This information is also meant to help us recognize red flags for emotionally unhealthy traits in others and ourselves so that we can actually build healthy relationships now and in the future. Sometimes when all we've had are unhealthy relationships, We might not know how to build healthy ones because we don't know what that looks like. So we're talking about red flags in this episode, but in the episode on boundaries, we're going to be talking about green flags. How do you set boundaries and what are we working towards? How do we create those healthy relationships? Now, in this episode, we're going to help you get a clearer picture of what clinical narcissism looks like and some curiosity questions you can ask yourself to decide whether you need to seek professional help for NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, or if you just have some maladaptive narcissistic patterns you picked up from your earlier environment. And remember, neither means you're a bad person. If you come to the conclusion at the end of this episode, like, I might need to have a clinician who can diagnose, take a look at me and see. That's okay. That does not make you a horrible person. It makes you a person with deep wounds of your own. And these narcissistic patterns are there trying to protect you. Yeah, you may have hurt a lot of people from this place. But you have the ability to heal. You have the ability to be accountable. And you have the ability to create healthy relationships in your future. If you will give yourself that permission and if you have less pathological traits or fewer narcissistic traits that come up, you have the same ability to get curious with yourself, recognize that you have experienced wounding in your past and these traits are trying to protect that wound. It does not mean you are a bad person. It means you learned maladaptive ways to survive. And you can unlearn those behaviors. We're also going to discuss the narcissistic spectrum, which actually ranges from healthy narcissism. Yes, you heard that right. This is something that blew my mind when I started learning about this at the end of May. There is such a thing as healthy narcissism. It is related to self-love and to self-worth, but it is also different. We're going to talk about that. So this spectrum, it ranges from healthy narcissism all the way to pathological narcissism. We're going to talk about why we all have some narcissistic traits and how those serve to motivate and protect us and what happens when people are traumatized that creates that narcissistic wound that we were talking about. We're also going to cover why dehumanizing the narcissist person in your life may be so damn tempting. But ultimately, it makes it harder for us to fully heal. It can be so tempting to want to call the person names, to minimize their humanity, to cut them out of existence, and to even wish for their death. These are all things that we may engage in mentally as a way to protect ourselves. And I get it. I have been there. And we're going to talk about the ways you can fully hold a person accountable without shaming or dehumanizing them. And we're also going to talk about why, even if they don't care, how this mindset is ultimately about helping you move forward and heal. Now, before we go any further in this episode, you know what I'm going to do. I have a quick ask of you. If you feel this podcast is helping you understand and accept yourself better, And if you feel these resources should be amplified so that more people have access to them as they deconstruct high demand religion and family trauma, what I want you to do is I want you to pause this podcast right now and head over to emancipateyourmind.org and make a $10 donation. Um, You're still here. Okay, I'm going to walk you through it. This is what we're going to do. So keep listening to me as long as you're not driving or doing something dangerous. Keep listening to me, but I want you to head to the website. So go to emancipateyourmind.org. If you need to, it's in the show notes. Just click on that link. The donation area is on the right-hand side at the top of the page under the words, Support the Podcast and Give a Gift. Now, what you're going to do is click the monthly donation button if you'd like to automatically fund the research and the broadcast each month so that we make sure that everyone that is healing from religious trauma or, in this case, narcissistic abuse, has access to the tools and support they need to thrive. Now, aside from the am I a narcissist question, I often get, Is my mom, dad, or spouse a narcissist? Here are the list of traits that are required to be diagnosed with clinical narcissism. And I want to point out that these traits can either be overt, which is their words and behavior, things that we can see and observe, or they can be covert. So these are the things that might be quietly present in their thinking and beliefs, So overt and covert are two sides of a spectrum as well. Overt is all of the outward stuff we can observe. Covert is all of the internal stuff going on for the person that we can only assume by their behavior, by their words, by the way they act. And let's just make this really clear because we're making assumptions, and we're usually making assumptions about a person who might not be emotionally aware or self-aware, we might get things wrong. We can make our best guess, but because we're not them, we don't actually know what's going on inside of them. Now, all of these traits, or at least the vast majority of them, will be present, whether it's overt or covert, in people with narcissistic personality disorder. And Addressing covert narcissism is actually relatively new in the field. There is a lot of research about overt narcissism, but it was only in 2013 that we started addressing in the DSM-5. It was the first time they made allowances for more covert kinds of narcissism. So this is pretty new. This is only a few years old, not even a decade old yet. So grandiosity is probably one of the most common traits for a narcissist. They have an exaggerated sense of self-importance. They feel they are superior to others and that they deserve special treatment. And these feelings are often accompanied by fantasies of unlimited success, brilliance, power, beauty, or love. They may also have a belief that because they're special, they can only be understood or can only associate with other special or high-status people or institutions. And I have to tell you, while I'm itching to hop right into how this shows up specifically in conjunction with religion, I'm going to hold off for the upcoming episodes. I'm going to specifically talk about each subset of covert narcissism and how high demand religion encourages those traits, nurtures those traits and creates a beautiful shelter for those traits. But today I want to keep it really general because we've got a lot to cover and I promise we'll be diving into the deep end soon. So an excessive need for admiration is the second quality most narcissists have. This person needs to be the center of attention They require excessive admiration and reassurance. They may monopolize conversations. They might monopolize your time or energy. They have a lot of needs and they expect you to care for them. And they often feel slighted, mistreated, depleted, or enraged if they feel ignored or if they feel like you haven't prioritized them enough. These are also the people that if there is a big event that is not about them, they will somehow find a way to make it about them, either by creating drama or talking over the person of honor or somehow stealing the spotlight. They will make it about them in some way. The next trait is they often have superficial and exploitative relationships. They tend to have relationships based on surface attributes and not the unique qualities of others. People in their life are only valued to the extent that they are seen as beneficial. So people in their life are resources they can mine. They're not people to connect with, people to share vulnerably with, people to actually see and be seen by. They are seen as either resources for narcissistic supply, ways to get what they want, ways to get cared for people are resources so for pathological narcissists the further up on the spectrum towards pathology you go the more people are seen as commodities not as human beings pathological narcissists lack boundaries they struggle to see where they end and where we begin this is especially true for parents It's hard for them to see us as anything other than an extension of them. They'll want to take credit for our success, but they'll also want to disown or discredit us for anything they feel reflects badly on them. So they want the glory for the good things we do, but they also want to distance themselves from anything that makes them look bad. They don't want any credit for that. Next one is lack of empathy. So severely limited or total lack of ability to care about the emotional needs or experiences of others, and this includes their own small children even, their spouses or their close friends. They assume others think and feel like they do, and they can get really upset or lash out when they find out we don't. So they just assume the world looks the very same for every other person as it does for them. And it feels very threatening to their sense of self when they find out that other people disagree. They have high instance of identity disturbance. So what this means is their sense of self is highly superficial. It is a mask. They have a fake like alter ego that they put on. Okay. And they lie to themselves that this is who they are. This is their true self. And... We know that it's an alter ego because they lead almost like dual lives. So the alter ego goes out in public, but at home, they usually are a different person. They can't keep on the mask 24-7. That's exhausting. Masks are heavy. It's hard to perform all of the time. And so they perform whenever it meets their needs and it gets them narcissistic supply But then they let their guard down and it's like the wound needs to come out and breathe. And so you'll often see a sort of a double identity. So what happens out in public is very superficial feeling, especially to people who are close to them. So children, spouses, close friends. And they often end up losing close friends because friends can cut and run a little bit easier sometimes than spouses and children can. They usually end up losing friends because of this superficial identity, because they can only keep that up for so long. Their identity is also extremely rigid. They try to control everything because they're trying to control their environment so that they can keep that mask on, and it's often fragile. If anyone sees through the facade and calls them out on anything, even if it is super, super teeny tiny, it feels like an attack On their entire person. And so they remain stable when they believe they're holding up the view for everyone that they're exceptional, but they may retreat from or deny realities that threaten their sense of specialness or superiority. So if you call out something that they say or do, if you critique their work, if you call out their religion as false or point out inconsistencies in an ideological system that they've bought into that makes them feel special, they will retreat from or deny those realities because it threatens their alter ego. It threatens this superior sense of self that they've created and presented to the world. They have difficulty with attachment and dependency. Their relationships only exist to give them a sense of validation and to reinforce the positive image of themselves that they so desperately want. They avoid getting intimate and they prefer to stay superficial so they can preserve their intricately crafted and often subconscious mask. So think about this. like They have friends that they consider close friends. And these friends will remain close friends as long as they stay on the surface. They don't get too close. They can go out to lunch, right? They can be ladies that lunch or they can be golf buddies. So they can go do that where they can keep on their mask, but they will not let these people in because if they let people get too close and too intimate, they will see the messy humanity. They're going to see the wound eventually. And that destroys this sense of exceptionality. It destroys the sense that they're somehow superior. Their peers might not hold them up on a pedestal anymore. And instead of seeing that as a healthy thing, like a place where we can both connect, they see that as very threatening. So they avoid getting intimate and they often envy others in their lives and or believe that others are envious of them. So more covert narcissists have a tendency to be envious of others and believe that others have privileges that they don't have, that somehow the world is working against them and that these other people just had advantages that they don't have. So more covert and vulnerable narcissists have a tendency to believe that, while more overt narcissists have more of a tendency to believe that others are envious of them. So that others are secretly coveting their spouse or that others covet their money or wish that they were as beautiful as they were or wish that they had their you know, status at church or their status in the company or just whatever. They also struggle to create attachments because they display arrogant or haughty behaviors or attitudes. So even if they don't overtly seem haughty, There's this underlying kind of sense of judgment and arrogance that sort of dictates everything. And it may be very passive-aggressive, And but people pick up on that eventually. They start to realize you're not just having a bad day, you're being serious. You really do care about some of these things you keep hinting at. And the more you hint at them over time, the more we realize you're serious. So it makes it really hard for someone with NPD to get really close to someone else. And then last, they engage in splitting. We've talked about this as all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking, but they tend to believe that people are all good or all bad. And they typically, when they're connecting with someone, remember, they're choosing people that will give them something or benefit them in some way. So When they have a new child, for instance, they may try to set this person up on a pedestal, this child up on a pedestal and make them the golden child. As long as that person, as long as that child plays along, they'll get to keep the golden child role. As long as they continue to give the narcissist supply, as long as they, you know, go along with the role that the narcissist has assigned them and they stay up on the pedestal, the narcissist is going to see them as all good. They can do no wrong as long as they're playing by the family rules that the narcissist has set. But if they make mistakes or are incapable of playing out this family role that they've been given, they often become the scapegoat, which is the other option where the narcissist puts this person in the garbage and believes that they can do no right. It's usually very binary. Either the person is all good or all bad. There are some instances, and I've talked about this behind the scenes with several of you and with my clients, where maybe you were set up on the on a pedestal at church, but you were in the garbage when it came to academics. Or maybe you were set up on a pedestal for athletics, but you were, you know, put in the garbage can when it came to being a church role model or whatever. So there may have been instances where you're parents were super proud of you and felt like you could do no wrong, but other instances where they treated you like you were in the garbage. That's actually a really common dynamic in narcissistic households. Now, I know some of you after hearing that are still worried that you're a narcissist. Don't worry. You're not alone. I'm going to give you some questions that come from Katie Morton. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm going to give you some questions to ask yourself if you're still worried. The first one is, Does the thought of being a narcissist make you feel bad for those around you? Are you concerned about how others feel? Are you quick to apologize when you've hurt someone's feelings? If you answered yes to any of these, chances are you're not a pathological narcissist because clinical narcissists lack the ability to empathize they're so detached from their own emotions because there's so much pain going on inside of them their narcissistic wound is so painful that they have dissociated from themselves and in order for me to empathize with you I have to be able to connect with something inside of myself that knows that feeling if I can't connect with something inside of myself that knows that feeling I can't empathize or guess what you might be feeling I can't take your perspective because I'm not connected to my own perspective. So if you are concerned about how others are feeling and if you are accountable for your actions, those are things that pathological narcissists are not typically able to do. I know even after all of that, there are still some of you who are concerned. So I'm going to ask a few more questions. Do you see your children, spouse, or friends as extensions of you? Are they representing you or living your life? Do you often think that other people aren't good enough to associate with you? Do you struggle to apologize or do you often feel like the disagreements you have in your life are someone else's fault? And do you struggle to understand someone else's perspective or imagine how someone else might be feeling? So, if you answered yes to any of those, you might have cause for concern, right? You might have reason to go and talk with a professional. Sometimes, Just having a professional help you see yourself more clearly can give you that self-awareness that can be really difficult for people with strong narcissistic traits. And they can remind you that you are worthy. You are worthy and you're capable of change. That these behaviors, these patterns aren't you. They're things you learned. You didn't come into this world with these beliefs and these patterns. You learn them. As a way to survive that doesn't make you a bad person that makes you a human trying to survive and that's what our brain was designed to do we can create safety for ourselves we can learn new patterns we can grow and we can get to a healthy place so highly recommend if you said yes to those things or if you're still concerned seek out a professional who can help validate you and help walk you through this process if you do have some strong narcissistic traits to help you work through them, all while helping yourself feel validated and worthy and just able to confront those hard truths. Now, I've said this before in some of my episodes, but I feel like this is one of the biggest keys. If you're genuinely concerned that you might be a narcissist, you probably are not. One of the biggest keys of a pathological narcissist is that they are not self-aware. It is too scary and painful to be attached to their bodies. They dissociate from themselves. They stay up in their head. They don't get down into their body. They don't feel their feelings. They shut that stuff down. They have suppressed the wounds that happened to them as a child. They are... Very unself aware. So, if you're even sitting here trying to be self aware and you're reviewing your own behavior, your own thoughts, your own patterns, and wondering if you are a clinical narcissist, the chances are you're not. You may have narcissistic traits again, because we all do. We all have narcissistic traits because some narcissism, at least, is healthy we need some narcissism. But as we get up further on the spectrum towards pathology, that's where we start harming people and creating some abusive relationships. Now, narcissism is a spectrum. All traits exist along a spectrum and narcissism is no different. At one end of the spectrum is what researchers call healthy narcissism, And this is the ability to care enough about ourselves to believe that we deserve love, kindness, and good things in our lives. This is the part of us that believes we're capable of having great ideas and sharing them with others. This is the part of us that knows we are capable of making decisions for ourselves. Healthy narcissism is related to self-esteem and self-worth, but it is not entirely the same. While self-esteem is the knowledge that we can make things happen, that we have talents and abilities, self-worth is the belief that we are worthy regardless, that we came to this earth worthy, that we remain worthy the entire time we're here. We're worthy of love, belonging, taking up space, having ideas, all of it, and that we leave this earth worthy. But healthy narcissism takes it just a little bit further in that it's taking pleasure in one's appearance, or taking pleasure in a job well done, or really enjoying the workings of your mind. It's an ecstatic joy and celebration in oneself. And although that joy is fleeting, it can be a powerful and sustaining sensation. Now, this comes from a licensed social worker, Robert Jenkins. He's from Specialized Therapy Associates. And he says, these are the qualities of this kind of narcissism. The first is the ability to admire, to see other people and admire them, and to accept the admiration of others. The second is a solid sense of self-esteem and self-worth. Believing that you are worthy and knowing that you have skills that you can use to create success in your life. The third is a healthy sense of pride in oneself and one's accomplishments. So, you know, just that mm, good feeling about a job well done that doesn't puff up into an unhealthy place, which is like, I am the only person that deserves recognition for a job well done and everyone else's job well done needs to be diminished in order for me to feel good about mine. That would be unhealthy. Just recognizing I did a really good job here and that feels amazing without diminishing other people's work is healthy narcissism. Number four, an appreciation of the needs of others and the ability to empathize with them. Number five, emotional resilience Number six, self-love and self-respect. Number seven, authenticity, the ability to be one's true self. Number eight, the ability to approve of ourselves and tolerate the disapproval of others. This is a huge one. A healthy sense of narcissism allows us to approve of ourselves, to really like who we are. And that allows us to tolerate the disapproval of others because there will be people who don't like us. We just, our personalities will conflict or we just see the world differently and that's okay. Having this healthy narcissism, this ability to approve of ourselves allows us to weather that storm. And then number nine, the confidence to have hopes, dreams, ambitions, and belief in one's ability to make a decision that will positively impact one's life. Now, the crazy thing is, is that to the extent we weren't allowed to develop this healthy sense of acceptance and love, a narcissistic wound is created. When we learn to believe we aren't worthy of love or belonging, that we're essentially bad or sinful, that it's not safe to be true to ourselves, that it's not safe to have flaws or make mistakes, that we can't trust ourselves, and that approving of or celebrating ourselves is not okay... Our narcissistic traits undergo a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde transformation to become something scarier and stronger to protect that wounded part of ourselves. The deeper and more pronounced that wound is, the more these traits transform towards pathology, moving along the spectrum towards diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. So when you're in a relationship with a person with NPD, or even a person with strong subclinical narcissistic traits, you're in a relationship with a person who has deep emotional wounds about their worthiness and their right to exist and take up space. They likely have strong beliefs underneath the surface that they aren't worthy and it's not safe to feel, which is why their grandiose, attention-demanding, and exploitative alter ego is working overtime. You are dealing with with Mr. Hyde on the regular, because Mr. Hyde is there to protect Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll was wounded as a child. Dr. Jekyll doesn't feel safe to be himself. Dr. Jekyll doesn't feel safe to feel through his emotions. And so Mr. Hyde has come on the scene and is hurtful to others in order to protect the more vulnerable parts of Dr. Jekyll. Now, this brings me to why it's important to our healing that we don't dehumanize narcissists. If you've been in a relationship with a narcissist, you are likely deeply, deeply hurt by their inability to consider your feelings, allow you to be an individual, and allow you to bloom and succeed. You are likely angry and disgusted with their behavior. You likely need space, perhaps lots of space to find yourself under the emotionally abusive rubble and begin to give yourself love, kindness, and an empathic ear. Because we were likely in codependent relationships with the narcissist in our lives, we believed our role was to caretake their emotions and their fragile ego. In fact, we had to do that for survival. We may have been told we were selfish for having needs of our own. We may have been told we were disloyal or weak, or bad for needing to set boundaries, when we feel like what we need to do to protect ourselves goes against our empathic nature to care for and protect others, and when we feel like protecting ourselves is actively harming someone else, what we do is we short-circuit our empathy by dehumanizing the person we need to separate from. That's the tendency. And the reason for this is because dehumanizing has been shown as a really effective way for us to get around our hardwiring to be empathic to other humans. Basically the thinking is is if the thing that we're hurting isn't human, then we're able to justify hurting it. But here's the problem. We still know that that person is a person. We're still aware of that. They may be a person that has caused us a lot of hurt. But by shaming and dehumanizing them, we actually stunt our own ability to heal and go on to create healthy relationships. When we shame others for their behavior, even if that behavior was horrific, we effectively shame ourselves when we exhibit any behavior that is similar. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you were raised with parents who had strong narcissistic traits you picked up some of those traits to survive in childhood. If you were raised in a highly narcissistic organization, you picked up traits to survive. So when we dehumanize these people that caused us harm, that created childhood trauma, that created deep wounds for us, When we dehumanize those people, we effectively dehumanize those parts of ourselves. When others are monsters, evil, or bullies for exhibiting narcissistic traits, we make it less likely that we can get curious with the narcissistic traits inside of ourselves, the ones we all have to one extent or another, and the unhealthy patterns we likely developed as a way to survive in our relationship with the narcissist. So if we aren't using dehumanizing language, how do we express our anger, our disgust, and our desire for healthy changes? While people aren't toxic, monstrous, or evil, and I know that that is an unpopular opinion in today's cancel culture, we want to call people toxic, we want to call people monsters, we want to call people evil, because we feel really scared and uncertain, and there are a lot of crazy coping patterns happening out there. There's a lot of crazy behavior out there that is not okay. But while people aren't toxic, monstrous, or evil, behavior absolutely can be. Call the behaviors what they are. Behaviors can be hateful, greedy, violent, abusive, even monstrous. Absolutely hold people accountable for their behavior. Calling out behavior For example, what you did to me was abusive, or how you belittled and shamed me was monstrous, gives them room to be a human that is separate from the behavior that needs to change. So an example would be like, you are abusive, or you are a monster. That's a statement of identity. So when we tell someone, you are abusive, there's very little room To change. It's possible to change behavior, but it can feel really threatening and impossible to change who you essentially are. And remember, people engaging in narcissistic patterns are trying to cover a wound, a deep wound that essentially says, I am not enough. I am not worthy of love and belonging. I am going to be abandoned. People don't like me. And what they're doing is they've created an alter ego that they can present to the world that they feel is more lovable, more likable, more impressive, and more likely to keep people around. And if they can't keep people around, then they'll discard you first so that they feel in control and they feel powerful in order to continue to protect that wound. They'll drive away people first so that they don't have to feel vulnerable. And so what we do when we say you are a monster, if there was any hope for someone who maybe isn't clinically narcissistic, but maybe further along on the spectrum, if we want them to have some self-awareness, if we want them to be accountable, if we want them to have the hope of changing and the hope of having a better relationship with them by saying you are toxic you are a monster, we're closing that opportunity. Because how do you change who you are? But when we say, what you did hurt me, this is how. What you did felt abusive, this is why. These are the ways you invalidated me. Or these are the ways I didn't feel safe to share my emotions with you. However you want to say it, when we call out behavior... We have the chance to change behavior because behavior is learned. It's not essentially who we are. How does this benefit us? Because this is really what this is about. When you have somebody who is so far on the spectrum that they are really unself aware and unempathic and unlikely to change, how does this benefit us by calling out behavior instead of dehumanizing others? So while a person further on the scale of pathology likely won't be willing or capable of getting curious with their maladaptive behaviors, remember the further on the spectrum they are, the less self-awareness there is, it opens the door for you to get curious about your maladaptive behaviors. Because if you get to remain human, if you get to remain a worthy person while getting curious about your maladaptive behaviors you have more hope of healing and then going on to create healthy relationships both with yourself and with others. When you notice yourself doing something that reminds you of your parent or partner, you don't have to immediately shut down that observation believing that any narcissistic tendencies mean you're a monster. You know that you as a person are worthy of love, kindness, and empathy. When old patterns come out. You know that you aren't your behaviors. Your behaviors are learned. They served you for a time. They helped you survive, and you can learn new ones. Now this week, our small step forward is probably going to be a little bit difficult. If you've been worried about being a narcissist, I'd like you to take a piece of paper and list the behavior or belief Singular or plural, if you have multiple behaviors or multiple beliefs that you're aware of, write them all down, but place those on a piece of paper. Writing it down is really important here. It makes it a physical thing. It makes it real. And while looking at what you wrote, remind yourself that you are not this behavior or belief. Both behaviors and beliefs are learned. You learn this thing for survival and you can unlearn it. It served you for a time, but it is not who you are. Who you are is worthy of love, kindness, empathy, and healing. And you're going to find new ways to validate that for yourself that don't hurt others. For me, I actually love the writing exercise. And if you want to take it a little further, create some art I'm not a fantastic paint or drawing artist, I love photography, but I created a piece of art of me from the back and I was holding a piece of luggage because that's what these patterns are, they're a piece of luggage. Reminding myself that this pattern is simply a piece of baggage I picked up from my childhood And that I can learn to set it down and I can learn to pick up something new, I can learn to go without the baggage if I want to, was really helpful. To envision that I am a person and I am worthy, no matter what baggage I'm holding, what clothing I'm wearing, what learned appearance things I've got, I, the person, am worthy And I might have some baggage, but I can learn to unpack the baggage. I can learn to set down the baggage. I can learn to lighten my load. And you can too. Thank you so much for joining me again after this two week break. I have loved getting to talk with you today. And I look forward to the next several weeks talking about the different kinds of covert narcissism that show up in high demand religion. And even mainstream religion sort of serves these kind of narcissistic tendencies as well. We're going to talk about what it looks like in real time, what it might look like in your family or your friendships, or what it might have looked like for old you, because I definitely recognize old me in some of these patterns, and then how we can begin to move forward. I can't wait to have these discussions with you, and I look forward to seeing you next Sunday.